presenting this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. Allergy season is in full swing. From asthma to food allergies, ReachMD is keeping you up to date with the latest in allergy medicine. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Todd A. Marr, Director of Pediatric Allergy Immunology at Gunderson Lutheran Medical Center in La Crosse, Wisconsin. How can we identify a stress-susceptible patient? And what effect does stress have on immunity? Joining us to discuss stress in the immune system is Dr. Galen Marshall, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics, Vice Chair for Faculty Development, and Director of the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson. Welcome, Dr. Marshall. It's a pleasure, Todd. I'm glad to be with you. So I think we've all heard about stress in the immune system, and can stress affect the immune system? Well, Todd, not only can stress affect the immune system, but it's been appreciated really since antiquity. One of the earliest references to the effect that stress has on immunity is found in the Bible in the Old Testament. Solomon said that a merry heart heals like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. It's quite interesting that Solomon picked the bones, which is actually the home of the bone marrow, which is the origin of the immune system. So what mechanisms can make a patient more susceptible to stress? To begin with, I think it would be important to define what we mean by stress, because it means different things to different people. And as we often do in medicine, we we end up using slang when we mean something different. Stress is actually an attempted perturbation of just plain homeostasis. And it is actually a psychological response where the individual either consciously or subconsciously asks two questions. Number one, is the situation presented to me harmful? If the answer to that is yes, the second question follows quickly is, do I have the coping skills to either protect myself, handle it, or so on? And if the situation is not deemed to be harmful, or if the individual deems that their coping skills are adequate, the physiological response that may be produced to that stressor, for example, going out and running and that has a physical stressor, interestingly, eating spicy food can be a stressor, listening to loud sounds, music, and so on. But if the individual perceives that his or her coping skills are inadequate and that harm or other forms of continued perturbation of that homeostasis results, then they try to do something about it. And that, for example, something we all know about is the classic fight or flight response from the adrenal gland. And it turns out that the adrenal gland, by way of the hypothesial pituitary axis, is central to the clinical response to stress. When an individual has too much stress or the stress is too long, that continued production of the adrenal hormones, both the corticosteroids and the medullary catecholamines, which also come from the sympathetic nervous system, will alter the normal immune balance of the individual. It may over-regulate, in which case they are now susceptible to increased infection, which is what stress has always been thought of, that stress causes infections. But also, it can cause an alteration to deregulate the immune system. And in individuals who are predisposed to develop hypersensitivity diseases, if they already have the disease, it can certainly increase the activity of that disease. The interesting question is that they don't yet have the disease. Can stress play a role in pushing them toward that? So stress plays a fundamental role on changing the immune balance that can, if it's overbalanced, result in infection, if it's underbalanced, resulting in hypersensitivity. So it sounds like actually those short-term stressors, the fight or flight, actually might be good for us. 
there's good information. Our research laboratory looks at this in clinical models. We're not looking at this in animal models, which many of my colleagues around the world do. But in the clinical models, the short-term stressors actually suggest that there actually are healthy. And I think we know that. We push the limits using exercise. It's a good example. An individual who's sort of deconditioned, if they push too hard, they can become exhausted. They can injure themselves and so on, and it's not good. But if they push and they're smart enough, and many of the personal trainers are particularly skilled at doing this, pushing us up to the limit of what would be harm, but it's a training, it is a conditioning thing, then that, in fact, can be useful. And the immune response can be conditioned in a positive way as well as in a negative way. So short-term stress by itself. Now, again, then you get into the problem, how many episodes of short-term stress equals recurrent stress, how much recurrent stress equals the effect of chronic stress. And as we've been studying in the lab very recently, what about individuals who come to the table with lots of chronic life stress? There's a lot going on in their lives. Things are not what they ought to be. And then they experience an acute stressor where will the effect on their immune system be distinct from somebody who's pretty happy-go-lucky, well-adjusted, in good physical condition, nothing really particularly wrong going on in their life. Maybe they're busy, but they enjoy being busy, and then they experience an acute stress. And the data would suggest that there's a very big immunological difference in an acute stress response depending whether the individual brings lots of stress to the table or whether they don't. As a clinician in the real world out there, is there anything we can do to identify a stress-susceptible patient? Well, let me go one more step in the lab, and then we'll go to the clinic, and that is we are personally right now actively involved in NIH protocol pending. We're part of this challenge grant thing that's going on right now, but we're trying to genetically identify the most stress-susceptible individuals because we're looking at things called polymorphisms, which are small uh, changes in the amino acid sequence of receptors. And the two receptors we're interested in are the stress hormone receptors, and that's corticosteroid and catecholamine. And we're also interested in some of the cytokine receptors because the argument is that if they're altered a little bit, a little bit of stress that produces a smaller amount of stress hormone, if someone has a receptor that really gobbles that stuff up, they, in theory, are going to be more susceptible. We have some fascinating preliminary data that we're going to be presenting in the fall and are looking for funding to expand that to see is this more common in women or men, in different races, different socioeconomics, and so on. I think the answer, though, to your question, Todd, in terms of how as clinicians we recognize that, the first thing is that we have to appreciate that it exists. A hundred years ago, our grandparents, who were physicians and healthcare providers, would laugh at the assertion that we consider the word psychosomatic a dirty word today. And that many clinicians, unfortunately, when they tell somebody that they have a psychosomatic disease, what they're trying to tell them is that it's not really real. They just think it is. It's all in their head. The word psychosomatic clearly means mind and body, and it means that there's a connection there. So if we appreciate that, if we appreciate the fact that someone who is under a severe amount of stress and the disease itself and the disease activity can be itself a stressor, so it becomes a circular type thing. Then we can begin to address how do we go and identify a person, number one, under a lot of stress, and number two, are there people that are more susceptible than others? If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy. I am your host, Dr. Todd Marr, and joining me to discuss stress in the immune system is Dr. Galen Marshall, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics, Vice Chair for Faculty Development, and Director of the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson. So this is fascinating because I think what you were just mentioning with psychosomatic type illnesses, et cetera, 
they do get downplayed a lot. And it's nice to see that there's actually research going on looking at these patients' stress and their immune system. What about an allergy and asthma specifically? Is there a relationship there? Yes. There is an increasing body of literature from our group, from people literally all over the world. And it goes literally from womb to tomb, Todd. One of my colleagues, good friend Rosalind Wright at the Channing Lab at Harvard, her group has done some phenomenal work to demonstrate that maternal stress can have an impact on the potential for allergic sensitization of children from the time of birth to by the time they're three years of age, increasing their level of immunoglobulin E, IgE being, as we all know, a independent risk factor for the development of asthma, and also their sensitization to specific allergens. She's also now studying right now whether in utero, prenatal stress can have an impact on the subsequent child. So she's looking at it on the front end. We're looking at it more right now, asking the question of individuals who have allergic rhinitis as they get older, adolescents and young adults, they have, as a group, an increased risk factor for developing asthma. It's particularly of interest in those who had childhood asthma that remitted, and now they're at risk for relapse. Another NIH pending application for us is the work we're looking at in those young adult individuals. Right now, as the initial thing, we're doing a cross-sectional design where we're taking young adults who had childhood asthma that remitted and has relapsed, and we're studying them in a three-year range because we're asking them about when they their asthma relapsed, how long it was, if there was some major life event. Did they graduate from college? Did they break up with someone? Did they get married? Did they have a divorce? Did they get fired? Both positive and negative stressors, but that can be stressful in a chronic way because what we know and has been published extensively is that that chronic stress will alter the immune balance in the genetically susceptible individual toward the side that would be pro-allergic. Their IgE level will go up, their interleukin-4 level goes up, their gamma interferon levels go down, and the end result of that is that then if they're exposed in a certain time frame, maybe a viral exposure, maybe an allergen exposure, then those individuals, in our hypothesis anyway, are at increased risk for having asthma relapse. And we're seeing that. In the two major psychiatric manifestations, and I use that word psychiatric advisedly, again, it's almost a pejorative term in our society that someone has a psychiatric illness. It's fascinated me in the work we've done for the last 10 years and in my own clinic that I have every week when I see these patients. If somebody had a big cast on their leg, clearly they had broken their leg, and they said, you know, you really ought to be able to run a marathon, people would look at you like you're crazy. But somebody who has problems with chronic depression or anxiety, we consider that really sort of their problem, almost a character issue for them, and not something that is just as clinically relevant to be managed in the context of another disease as are things like uh, orthopedic problems or metabolic problems. So again, going back to my first comment, the recognition of that will allow us to say, gee, in difficult-to-control asthma, just by nature of the fact that you're given a medicines that can be a mind-altering, high-dose corticosteroids, others, just by the fact that they're sick all the time and can't do the things that they want to do, could they have some problems with anxiety and or depression? 
the literature says absolutely. Studies show as high as 70% of individuals with moderate or severe persistent asthma have clear signs of a depressive behavior. Not necessarily major depressive disorder, but depressive behavior. Anxiety, when you can't breathe, it's a pretty anxiogenic event. And when you're not quite sure when you're going to be able to breathe and when you're not, it can make you anxious all the time. The flip side of that are people who do have major depressive disorders and people who have anxiety disorders, a common one that people know now is post-traumatic stress disorder. When you analyze them in a prevalence fashion, they have a higher incidence and prevalence of both allergic disease and asthma compared to the population at large. It's age-matched and gender-matched and race-matched, but don't have those major psychiatric diagnoses. So clearly, there is a relationship between the mind and the body as it relates to allergic sensitization and the symptoms and clinical progress of rhinitis and asthma and, guess what, chronic urticaria, which is a really big area that we take care of. Wow. I mean, that's fascinating when you think about it from the standpoint of adolescence today compared to when you and I were born or go back even further, that how much stress these kids are in that we put on them, that society puts on them, and maybe there is. Your hypothesis is really fascinating, and hopefully we'll get some great data from that. What about other environmental factors? Is there any impact that has on it? I think clearly there is. There are three things that the literature suggests that are very important in mitigating the effects of stress from an environmental standpoint. Number one is an optimistic spirit. And the literature varies, and I think we as clinicians understand that some people just seem to be pessimist and some people seem to be optimists. But I think there's some flexibility in that, in that you, know, you teach somebody that the glass is half full rather than half empty. The second is the support system. The physician-patient relationships fit in that as well, but also the nuclear family, fraternal organization, friendships, organizations like that, these are all been shown. People that feel isolated and alone don't fare as well immunologically and therefore with these diseases as people that feel wanted and accepted and part of the group. And then the third one that's in there is a belief system. And this is not necessarily based upon any specific religion, but it's based upon the idea that the individual believes that there is a purpose, if you will, to what they're going through and a value interceding in a way so that they're not basically a fatalist, well, whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's just going to happen, that they have an opportunity to be involved. There's very good data to say that that's involved, and it helps mitigate many of these environmental factors, crowding, socioeconomic status, the environment in which someone works, and so on. This has been fascinating, Galen, and I think, in all honesty, we need to revisit this again with you to find out how progress is going and get some other thoughts. So I'd like to thank my guest from the University of Mississippi Medical Center, Dr. Galen Marshall. Dr. Marshall, thank you for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. A real pleasure, Todd. Thank you. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit ACAAI.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.